Good morning. So, uh, yeah, we're carrying on our series 365. We're in our, um, our 365 is our mission, our vision, and our values. Um, so three, that we living out of faith, hope, and love in our community. Um, then we have six values, and we have five vision statements, which we are working through. So we're getting near the end. Just a few weeks left now, people. We're going to get through it. So um, we're nearly there. But, um, and we're looking at our resource Um, vision statement. Um, So this morning, my talk is called Why What We Do Matters. And what's it got to do with power, love, Jesus, and others? Um, So, oh yeah, I've got this here. So I'll, sorry, I'll use this and I'll flick it on. Yeah, so why what we do matters and what's it got to do with power, love, Jesus, and others? And this is all around our... um, our vision statement, or one of our vision statements, it says, by God's spirit, working in partnership, we are committed to resourcing the wider church to bring about kingdom transformation. Each one of our vision statements says, by God's spirit and working in power, we are committed to, because partnership matters, because we don't do any of this on our own. We do it in partnership with the spirit of God, and we do it in partnership with other people, with the wider church. We do it in partnership with other organizations. We, we see partnership as a key fundamental principle of the kingdom and so on our vision this particular vision statement is resourcing the wider church rosie spoke about this a couple of weeks ago um, to bring about kingdom transformation and look we've had this vision statement for quite a long time at ycc we've like resourcing has kind of been part of what we're about feels like forever we've always wanted to be a resource church you know we recognize that we're blessed and so we bless um this is what we do but actually i wanted to spend a little bit of time this morning Looking at the why. Why why does this matter? You know, you might all sit there and go, Adam, you're done. Fine, sit down. I get it. Like, resourcing's important. We need to give away. We need to be, you know, we're blessed. And so we need to bless other people. It's really straightforward, Adam. We all get it. It's not a problem. Sit down. Tempting, I know. Even if you don't, you're going, oh, no, sit down. I mean, there's enough. But, um, but I want to talk about um, a little bit about why. Because the story that we live in defines our behavior. What I mean by that is that we can say we believe all sorts of things. We can say that all sorts of things matter, that we're passionate about all sorts of things. But actually, if you want to know what somebody believes, look at how they behave. Our behavior is driven by the story that we live in. It's driven by the narrative. And this happens, this is true for us as individuals. But it's also true for us as the church. So as individuals, we might, be, we might say that something's really important to us and that we're really passionate about something. But actually, if we want to understand, then you need to see what drives us by how we behave. We might say that we're all about charitable, charity and we're very generous people, etc., etc., etc. But actually, look at what we spend our money on. Look at our bank accounts. Look at what we're spending our money on. You'll see what somebody cares about. We might have a narrative that we've been given that you're not worth very much and you're not very important and nobody, you're not really very livable. And this might be a narrative that's kind of been given you over a number of years by somebody or by a number of people. And what you'll see is that behavior starts working its way out into, that, that belief, that narrative starts working its way out into behavior. And you start making decisions that aren't actually focused and rooted in your real worth they're focused and rooted in your perceived worth 
that message that you've heard from someone. This, we see this happen all the time. The story we live in defines our behavior, and it is true for us as a church as well. It's really important we understand the story that we live in, because that's how, that's how we understand our behavior. That's what motivates us. That's what drives us. So, I wanted to look at um, this. Which gospel? Because the gospel is really the framing narrative of the church. And, you know, people say to me, you know, every now and again, someone comes to me and go, Adam, we just want you to preach the gospel. Just, you know, preach, preach the Bible, just, you know. And I go, well, which gospel are you talking about? They go, you know, the gospel, the main, the core gospel, the gospel, you know, that we're all sinners and we all need, and someone then they need to repent. And then if the people invite Jesus to pay the price, and if we accept that, then we'll go to heaven. I go, well, that's a good, that's a good gospel. And, you know, that's a great gospel. But, you know, that only really came about in, its, in that current form 500 years ago. That's not really the original gospel. We had 1,500 years as a church before that gospel came into into the, into the forefront of what we talk about. Which gospel are we talking about? And even just over the last century, um, I have made a, a few new friends recently. Over through the lockdown, it's given us this opportunity to connect with different church leaders around the world. And I connected with one of these guys, a guy called Dave Fitch. He sounds exactly like Jack Nicholson. Looks a little bit like him. It's quite cool. Um, but quite intimidating at the same time. But um, he leads a church over in America. And, and I was chatting to him this week. And uh, he sent me this thing, which he wrote a while ago, about some of this. And, I was, and it was really helpful. And I was reading it. I was going, this actually really helps us understand which gospel are we talking about. Now, I've put there the Billy Graham gospel, because that might be the most familiar for some of us. Back in the 80s, I went forward at Billy Graham crusade made that decision. It wasn't the first time I'd made that decision, about the third, I think. But, you know, we all have our journey to go on. And um, made the decision at a Billy Graham crusade. And that gospel was very much that, that there is a fundamental problem, that we are sinful, that we are separated from God. I, I've put in brackets there the Titanic gospel, because that's how I kind of refer to it, that this was all created perfectly. And very quickly into the story, it went badly wrong. Humanity got holed beneath the waterline. Sin came into the picture and we are separated from God. Sin takes over. And our hope is Jesus, because Jesus, divine, came to be man, died on the cross, paid the penalty for our sin. And if we believe in that, if we accept that, then we um, are saved and our salvation will work out. We will go to heaven when we die. None of these Gospels I'm talking about are bad Gospels, by the way. I'm not rejecting any of them. But that was, that's the Gospel. But it drives our behavior a particular way. The reason I call it a Titanic Gospel is because it's quite small and it's quite individual. Yeah, this all went wrong really quickly. And now what we're trying to do as a church is save the last few people who are in the water before the whole thing goes down. Because the whole thing is going to burn. I, was, I made a mistake of going on a Facebook thread this week. It's not good. Um, Elim, actually, the Elim Church put out this really great post about how you can be praying about COP26. It was a really great post. But then I went into the comments section and I really wish I hadn't. One of these comments said... Why are you bothering with this? If you think what we're doing to the planet's bad, wait till you see what Jesus does when he comes back. 
I was like, oh my goodness, that's quite bad theology. But it was kind of based on this idea that when Jesus comes back, everything's going to be destroyed, the whole ship's going to go down, and Jesus is going to evacuate those people who believe in him. You see, the story we live in defines our behavior. It can actually get us to behave quite unloving, uncaring, quite dismissive of people, quite independently or individualistically. I'm saved. That's all that really matters. It becomes quite a small gospel because it leaves us kind of in our little lifeboat churches, bobbing around, trying to get the last few people out of the sea before Jesus comes and evacuates us away. It means that we get quite precious about who else is in our lifeboat. It means that we get quite dismissive maybe of other people who are in other lifeboats or wary of other people in other lifeboats. It means that we get, that we kind of wait around waiting to be evacuated, that really the whole idea of the kingdom of God happens way down in the future when Jesus comes back or after we've died. That's when we go to heaven. Do you see how the story you live in defines your behavior? We can then maybe as a church become quite judgmental. We could become quite dismissive of people. We could be very interested in their souls, but not really interested in their mental well-being or in their physical well-being or in their social well-being. Because we're just trying to save their soul so they can go to heaven. Do you see how we could... I'm not saying there isn't truth in that gospel, but it can lead us to quite small individualistic behavior. Our job as evangelists is for in, as individuals to evangelize other people, to get them in, so they too can have their justification by the blood of Jesus secured for when they die. But he doesn't do much in the now. But then, if you go back actually to the 19th century, um, the social gospel came along, that's even become probably even a little bit more prominent in America, probably through the civil rights movement, um, and then even in in the UK and in Europe, um, even more realistically, or more recently in things like um, Christians Against Poverty or food banks. And, and this idea that actually the kingdom is now and there is suffering now, it's not just about individual salvation, it's actually about systemic problems, that there is poverty, that there are, there are systemic issues, there are oppression. And there's people suffering and that's not in line with God's will because Jesus announces his kingdom. And so we need to work hard to alleviate that suffering. We need to work hard to bring this social gospel out that, that God wants to restore people and God loves people and God announces his kingdom. So we need to work hard at these social projects, which is great. Obviously something we care about here because we do social projects. We bring food on a Sunday morning as part of our worship. Social gospel is part of what we're about, but sometimes the social gospel can be seen as kind of being more on the liberal side or it can be maybe maybe sometimes the spirit of God can get a little bit diminished or it becomes about, well, seeing the best in everyone or doing the best for everyone or everyone becoming their best version of themselves and still quite individualistic maybe, although we're tackling systemic sin over individual sin. And this became a very prominent gospel, like I say, in the 19th century, influenced um, all sorts of movements, um, whether that be about um, the right of women to vote and um, 
and the rise of um, liberation of women, the rise of um, civil rights movement and slavery abolishment and all those sorts of things, and like I say, more recently, into social action and, and impacting our local community. The gospel, the story you live in, defines your behavior. Do you see how that works? Um, so then we've got another gospel that came through as a liberation gospel, again, very much in the civil rights movement was strong on this. This is about a gospel um, that says that Jesus, God, is amongst the oppressed, the people with their backs against the wall, the people who are born into slavery, or the people who are, are born and um, where the, the whole system is against them. And this has demonstrated itself, like I say, through the civil rights movement, through the feminism movement, um, possibly currently through the LGBTQ movement. These people who have really had their backs against the wall, who've suffered um, and struggled. And this idea that actually that's where God is moving. God moves. The Latin American church is very big on this. This is about the people who aren't in power, but God moves against the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, the people with their backs against the wall, and God moves amongst them and saves them, rooted very much in the Exodus story of Israelites in slavery in Egypt, and God liberates them. And in the same way, God is liberating people today. It doesn't have to be rooted in church in that sense. It's rooted amongst people groups. It's rooted amongst movements, that God is very much out and about transforming the world in that sense, but not necessarily through the agency of the church. And so there can be some issues with that, although it's beautiful. And actually the invitation to sit with people who are suffering oppression and to see God through their eyes is something that we should take whenever we have that opportunity. Another gospel might sound familiar is the fourfold gospel. Now this actually follows on a very similar route from you have this core problem of individual sin, separation from God. But rather than just, well, justification um, through the blood of Jesus and that kicks in when you die, the fourfold gospel really you know, might be something that we see in the vineyard movement, in the Ely movement, in other movements like that. And, it's, and it goes back further than that. But this idea that you know, it's not just about justification. And being forgiven, it's actually about sanctification and being made holy. That the Spirit of God is doing work in us. That it's about healing and God as healer, Jesus as healer. And so we can be transformed, not just when we die and get to heaven, but transformed right now. And this idea that we can have the baptism of the Spirit. And that Jesus is coming again in this sort of fourfold ministry that... We can be transformed and we expect the miracles now and the move of God now and the transformation now. And that, can, that, like I say, we see that in churches. That's something that we would talk about here. One of the problems with that, again, it still can be quite individualistic. But also, in its less positive forms, churches can become quite legalistic. Well, you're either all in or you're out. You're either following all the rules, you're tithing properly and you're serving properly and you're doing everything that your church leader says, or you're out. And it can become quite legalistic, but actually in its good form, it can be transformational, it can be exciting, it can be, um, it can be a beautiful thing to see. And we would see, this is something that we see quite a lot in the new wine movement, organisations and movements that we're connected with. 
and something we would talk about here, this idea that it's not just about being saved when you die, but actually being transformed now, being filled with the Spirit now, having that move. And that this is a gospel that came through um, over the last century again, but very strong, I would say, in the last 40, 50 years. The good gospel, this is kind of like neo-Calvinism, if you understand that sort of language. But this is an idea actually started in, in Holland through the Dutch church. And it took that sort of, those sort of Calvinistic roots and said, no, yeah, we are bad and we do need to be saved. And again, that quite individualistic sense, but also said, but Jesus, God isn't just restricted to that individual salvation. Jesus, God is also working in the world for the common good. He's also transforming the world around you. And so our role as Christians is to get into those positions of influence, to get into those positions of power, to, get in, to be scientists looking at things like global warming, but also to get into politics, to get into business, um, to get into education, to get into these influential places where we can influence what's going on in the world, where we can change the world through our own endeavours, but that we want to see the world change, but we do it by power and by influence. Again, there's some good in that, but it can be quite conservative, often doesn't challenge powers, just tries to get inside and use influence from power to change laws that might be in line with how we want, we think they should be, or, um, but isn't particularly revolutionary, um, it can be quite safe. All that to say, which gospel? And we would say here... Actually, there are aspects of all of those that we recognize and that we celebrate. But we might talk a little bit more, again, something that's probably come through more recently, um, but about the, about the kingdom gospel. See if that's working or not. Um, so we would talk about the kingdom gospel. And the kingdom gospel, um, if we can flick onto the next slide, um, is this idea that actually it's even more joined up than that, and it's even more full than that, that we're part of something bigger than ourselves, that that Jesus announced the kingdom of God as a present reality that we were to engage in, that we were to commit to, that we were citizens in the kingdom of God, that that we declared Jesus as Lord of all creation. And all things would be reconciled and will be reconciled under Jesus. That we want to see wholeness, not just in ourselves and individuals, but in creation, in society, in all aspects of society. That Jesus is right at the center because Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. And he is in the business of restoring all things. God's kingdom is now. And we are to live in it. But more than just live in it, we are to model this kingdom. We live in this world where we are driven by particular messages around you are measured by how much wealth you have or what things you have or what success you have or how much fame you have or whatever that might be. And, but we live in this kingdom where we declare Jesus as Lord that says, well, the first will be last and the last will be first. How do we live in that reality? How do we live in that kingdom and wrestle that kingdom in our lives as individuals 
and as a church? How do we model this kingdom in a world that is polarized, us versus them, that is quite tribal? If you're on our side, you're great, and if you're against us, then you're a problem, and we need to overpower you, and we need to dominate you, and we need to oppress you, and we need to win. But we live in a kingdom that says that we need to serve and we need to love and we need to forgive and we need to be united. And so we model something as a church. This isn't just about individuals being saved and then influencing as individuals or being in powers of positions of influence and influencing that way. This is saying, as a church, this isn't just a collection of people waiting to be evacuated or a collection of people who all happen to believe the same things. We in ourselves are a revelation of this kingdom. How we live together, how we worship together, how we love one another, how we forgive one another, how we serve one another, how we bless our community, how we pass on the blessings that are within us out into our community. Reveal who God is. Give the world a glimpse of another way of seeing things. Show the world what the kingdom can look like. I want to focus a little bit on power. So in Mark chapter 11, it says this, because I think this really relates to us being a resource church and why we are a resource church. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Now, this might sound like a very familiar passage to a lot of you. In fact, we sing songs, don't we, about faith moving mountains. But again, if we have quite an individualistic narrative, then that's God moving my mountains. And if I believe enough, then God will make sure my problems disappear. It's quite different, actually, from what Jesus is saying here. This is as Jesus is entering Jerusalem to go and overthrow the temples, the, the tables in the temple. This is before Passion Week, right at the beginning. And he stood just outside Jerusalem, looking at Jerusalem, looking at the Temple Mount, the temple that is on a mountain. And Jesus says, looking at this temple on a mountain, looking at this city on a mountain, Jesus says, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, And does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Well, that's got quite a different feel, hasn't it? This mountain, which is the foundation of their, it's their religious center. It's the foundation of their nation. It's the foundation of their faith. And Jesus is saying, if anyone says to this mountain to be thrown in the sea, and you have enough faith and you believe it will happen, well, it will be done for you. bit harder to get into a worship song doesn't quite scan the same does it but you see Jesus isn't going oh don't worry if you've got enough faith God will make your problems go away he's saying if you've got enough faith we can overthrow this whole religious system of power and replace it with the kingdom you see the religious center had become the problem the the religious center had become the antithesis of the kingdom that it was supposed to reflect he had become the antithesis of the god that it was there to worship it had become about power and oppression and jesus goes and he overthrows the temple 
he's turning the tables over. And I, you know, I hear a lot of people kind of go, oh, you see, Jesus got angry, so we can get angry too. That's a whole different discussion. Maybe we should have that sometime. But when he's turning over those tables, it's not some rogue traders at the back that he's kicking out. They are the system. You see, if you wanted to make a sacrifice in Jerusalem, and if you wanted to be a good Jew, then you needed to make a sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem. If you wanted to be forgiven, if you wanted to be included, if you wanted to be regarded as clean, if you wanted to be acceptable in society, if you wanted to be good enough, if you wanted to be in, if you wanted to be regarded as holy, you had to make a temple, a sacrifice at the temple. But if you wanted to make a sacrifice at the temple, you couldn't just sacrifice any animal. No, that would be too easy. No, you had to sacrifice one of the temple's animals. They decided which sheep were good enough, which bulls were good enough, and whatever. In fact, the shepherds who are shepherding the flocks by night, in the story at the beginning when Jesus is born, are shepherding the temple sheep. The The lambs being raised ready for slaughter, ready for sacrifice. And if you wanted to make a sacrifice, you had to buy one of their lambs. And it won't surprise you that they were quite expensive. But it's more than that they were quite expensive. You weren't allowed to buy them with Roman money. Everybody was paid in Roman money. But you weren't allowed to buy them with Roman money. You had to buy them with temple money. And so there were people in the temple who would exchange your Roman money for temple money. The money changers. But they were extortionate. That cost a fortune. And in the law it says if you can't afford a lamb, well then, if you're really poor, if you're struggling in poverty, well then, just sacrifice doves and that'll be enough. But the doves, we have documentation now that says the price of doves in that temple in that 10 year period went up a thousand percent. It was extortion. This whole system was rigged against the poor. It was a money-making racket. And Jesus walks in and turns over the temples and says, I have not come to set up a forgiveness racket. I have come to set up a forgiveness economy and start saying some radical things. He says, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Sounds fairly straightforward, right, for us today. But then that was radical because if you, you couldn't just go around forgiving anyone. In fact, when Jesus did go up to people and forgive them, the Pharisees got mad going, no, you're not allowed to forgive people. That's our business. We make a lot of money out of that. You're undercutting us doing this for free. They weren't very happy about it. And so they got really mad at Jesus. And Jesus said, well, look, which is harder? Tell him he's forgiven or tell him he can get off. And he says, get up off your bed and walk home. And he gets up off his bed. And the Pharisees don't know what to do because he's disrupting their whole financial model. He's tearing their whole system down. And when he says, well, just, you know, forgive and you'll be forgiven. Well, that's not in the rules. Forgiveness is the business of the temple. And now Jesus is saying, well, any of you can forgive anyone. And as you forgive, so you're forgiven. Forgiveness now is free. He sets up this forgiveness economy rather than a forgiveness racket. But he does the same with prayer. Do you notice? I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you received it and it will be yours. Well, no, prayer is the business of the temple. You pay to pray. And there's Jesus going, ask for anything. And it's fine, you can have it. 
He's ruining their whole system. And then he says, but whatever you bind will be bound, and whatever you loose will be loosed. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will, will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. If two of you, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven again. Prayer isn't just an individual thing, it's a communal thing. But it's for anyone and it's for everyone. Binding and loosing is the business of the temple. The Pharisees decided what the laws meant and what they didn't mean, who was in and who was out. And now Jesus is saying, you guys decide. This is for everybody and anybody. And the ultimate dispersal of power is Pentecost. You see, the model of power in the kingdom is power that is dispersed, not power that is hoarded at the center. The model of power in the kingdom is power that is given away to everybody and anybody, not power that is, that is protected and centralized. And Jesus disrupts their power, and Jesus overthrows their power, and Jesus disperses their power and says, that racket is over. We're throwing that whole mountain into the sea. Whatever you ask for will be given. As you forgive, so you'll be forgiven. Whatever you bind will be bound, and whatever you loose will be loosed. This is you people now, and I'm giving you the spirit to work this out. This dispersal of power. You see, we are blessed to be a blessing. We are not the end game. We are the conduits of God's blessing. And so, we want to disperse power. So, we want to live generously. So, we want to give away. And so, we see ourselves as a resource church. Our purpose is not to build YCC and make YCC bigger. Although that does seem to happen. Our purpose is not to centralize it all and accumulate it all. Our purpose is to disperse and to give away and to bless and to resource. To see the kingdom come wherever we are. To see the kingdom come with whoever we partner with. In our community, in our nation. The story we live in defines our behavior. None of those gospels are bad. But we believe in this big gospel that says that we model something here. We model something here. And the world gets to see what power looks like in the kingdom. The world gets to see what generosity looks like in the kingdom. The world gets to see what it means for people to love one another, even when they're not like one another. Even when they don't always agree with one another. The world gets to see what it looks like when people agree, when people are united, when people love, when people live generously, when people are a resource. We give the world a glimpse of what this kingdom is like. This kingdom that Jesus announced is now, is present. And we are to live in it. Amen. Yeah.